Thanks, Aaron and Paxton and Cameron. David, glad you joined us, team. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Hey, if you will, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 2. That's where we're going to be in just a couple of minutes, Jonah, chapter 2. Uh, but before we get there, I want to take a moment uh, to engage in corporate prayer. Yeah, Carson, hang for a second. Um, we're, we're taking a moment together to just pray. We try to do this weekly. Last week we did it at the end of the service. Uh, but really, quite often it fits in this moment right before we really open God's word and the text to see uh, the gospel in the scriptures. Um, here's, what, here's what I'd love for us to do this morning. Uh, to really just pray for three things together. Uh, and so I'm just going to try to outline it really quickly in these three parts. And then we're going to take the opportunity to pray this together corporately uh, as a body. First... Uh, I want you to pray for me. Um, I, my, my, my job, my joy, my calling, my responsibility this morning is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. That you would hear that and that alone. That this would be what would exalt and glorify God, not opinion or, or, or funny jokes or any other moments. Ultimately, all that we would leave with would be the resonant truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray for me this morning that even uh, redeemed as I am in the midst of brokenness, that I would just be clear with the gospel? Second, could we pray for ourselves that we would hear the gospel this morning, that we would, with fresh eyes and fresh ears, recognize all that it is that Christ has done for us, that we would know in a way, maybe with, that we have it before, that it is finished. That the very work of salvation has been accomplished for us. There's nothing left for you and I to do except receive and embrace the grace that is given us. Could we pray that together for ourselves? And then also, could we pray for our brothers and sisters around us this morning? Could we pray for our brothers and sisters around us that the same hope and joy peace and love that we proclaim and long to experience in assurance this morning through the gospel that our brothers and sisters around us would experience that as well. Um, so I'd love it if, if we could do this. Um, we're not as liturgical as most churches, so I don't feel as bad about saying stand up because we don't do like the stand up, sit down thing like aggressively like some churches you've been to in your life. Okay. Can we do this? Can we stand together for a moment uh, as we pray? And could you also do this in, in order to mo more effectively pray that prayer, man, like do a little 360, turn around, look at, not everybody at once, cause then it's not going to work. Uh, I realize this in the moment, uh, but maybe, maybe not your whole body, right? Just uh, look around this room and look at the people that you, that you see in here, people that you know, their story, people that know your story, your brothers and sisters in the faith, people who are a part of God's family. He's knit you together. Pray for one another in this moment that we would all be edified by the teaching of Scripture through the power of God's Spirit. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, needy as always we come. Father, corporately I pray, Father, but also we pray uh, that you would remove obstacles, that the words that are spoken in this moment... Um, human as they may be, Father, that the words of this mouth would be pleasing to you, the meditation of this heart would be pleased to you, God, that, that you would allow me to communicate your truth only by the power of your spirit, clearly that we might hear the gospel again together. Father, we pray for ourselves. We ask you to do a work in us this morning to, to lift the scales, to remove the blinders, to, God, in so many ways, clear a path for us to see the good news, to hear the good news of what Jesus has done. Father, we confess that, that it is easy to think about ourselves, that we long for goodness in ourselves. God, this morning, could we long for that for our neighbor? Father, would you cause us right now with our heart attentive to the people that we've just seen with our very eyes, the voices we've heard singing around us. God, would you cause us, even throughout this gospel preaching, to pray for them, 
God, would you work in the hearts of our brothers and sisters around us that they might know your son and thus have life. We pray all of these things, Father, in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Carson, thank you, man. Hey, Jonah 2 is where we are this morning. Um, Jonah 2. Been here a couple weeks, um, two weeks exactly. Look, week one, trying to walk through the first portion of the book of Jonah, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Last week, really moving 7 through 17 in a series called Jonah, the God who pursues. The God who pursues. And look, here's the thing. I think... Quite often, a number of us have some real trepidation, some real challenge in reading the Old Testament. We look back to a period of time, ancient days, in which there's some, maybe some cultural disconnects, some things that we don't quite understand as well, some words we're not familiar with, and maybe we, maybe we go to read our Bible in our quiet times, or we go to be with the Lord in the Scriptures, and the Old Testament is not the first place that we turn. We want it to be a habit and for us to recognize that if we're going to become gospel people, and that's the vision, that if we're going to become gospel people, if we're going to be people who believe in the gospel, who live in its reality together, and who are able to live it out, then we need to understand the whole of Scripture. We need to see the big picture of God's story of salvation for all of his people, people that came long before us, people that experienced a relationship with God and people through whom God revealed and showed Jesus who was to come. Really, really important. So for those reasons, we're in the book of Jonah this summer, looking through this over the course of these few weeks. I'd love to take just a couple of minutes before we're in chapter 2. 2 is where we're going to be today. We're really going to start in chapter 1, verse 17. If you have a Hebrew Bible, that's really kind of where chapter 2 starts. Uh, But for our purposes, we're starting in chapter 1, verse 17, and we're going to walk all the way through verse 10 in chapter 2 this morning. I want to offer a little bit, as succinct as we can, a a recap of where we are. All right, so Jonah is this prophet. Jonah is a prophet that God has called very specifically. And if you read the first part of Jonah, you see it really plainly that he's called to go to this great city, this big place called Nineveh, and tell this group of people to, and the, and the Old Testament describes it, the Hebrew describes it in this way, to call out against it. It ultimately means to say, look, recognize your sin, turn and repent and come back to the Lord. This is what Jonah is called to do, and it really doesn't matter how fast or slow you read it. You kind of can't miss that God's very clear with Jonah. He's not confused about what it is that he's called to do. And yet, we see Jonah run the other direction. Why does he do this? This place, Nineveh, this is a place where not just some rough folks are found. This is literally the worst people you could imagine. One of the most barbaric and, and, and horrible groups of people in history. These are the people that Jonah is called to. So he runs. He disobeys. He goes the other direction. He attempts to flee from the Lord's presence. And we're going to see today, we're going to get this really clear picture that despite all of his disobedience, despite all of his desire to do that, to go away from the Lord, he cannot do so. The Lord is relentless in his pursuit of Jonah and he controls these things. So there's this language we're going to talk about a lot today that Jonah goes down. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down to this place to get away from his his calling to go to Nineveh and preach. He goes down to Joppa, and then he goes down into the ship. And then the early verses of chapter 1 would tell us he goes down into the innermost portion of the ship. He goes down, he goes down, he goes down. This great storm comes. God orchestrates the storm. He is in deep pursuit of Jonah. These mariners that he's with recognize that he is the one that is... Essentially, the locus of all of this trouble, this wind, this storm, this rain, Jonah recognizes that he is the one who has run from the Lord. He needs to be thrown overboard. There's hesitation by the sailors. They ultimately end up doing it, and we get this wild picture of now Jonah ultimately being in the water, a mysterious and deep water, a place from which he sees no escape, And yet God, still in control, appoints this great fish to swallow him, to take him in. God's pursuit 
God's control are all a part of this story. And today in chapter 2, the thing that we're going to see the most is one more picture of God's character. Because we've talked for two weeks about the fact that we can look to this story and we can see the character of Jonah. We can see the character of the sailors. And even as we move through chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see the character of the people of Nineveh. But the bigger question that we're called to ask when we read God's word is not just what do I do? How should I emulate or how should I be like or not be like the people in this story? The big, big question is what is God like? And so for two weeks we've seen that God is a God who pursues people, all people. Prophets, these rebellious, in so many ways polytheistic, worshiping everything under the sun, no, no, no real allegiance to the Lord at all. God pursues those people. He pursues even the worst, these people in Nineveh. And that he's in control of all things. And today, the glaring thing that's going to that's jump from the text, what we're going to see is this. This is what God is like. He's a God who saves. He's a God who saves. You will read with me. This is Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, moving through Jonah 10. It says this, or 2.10 says this. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, for you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. All right, let's start with verse 17 and look and see what's happening in this story. The Lord appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So at the very beginning of today's reading, one of the things that we see very clearly is that this is not a story that is bound up in circumstance. It's a story that is bound up in providence. God appoints this fish to swallow Jonah, right? I've seen great fish eat on television, like I've seen whales eat, and it's not a very strategic thing. These guys are just mouth open and kind of whatever hits them, right? In this moment, God truly appoints this fish to swallow Jonah. There's a picture of pursuit. There's a picture of control. And then I think you are like me and we live in the modern West. And now the question that we ask when we read this story is, how in the world does this happen? How does this happen? This doesn't make sense to me. And I want to be like really candid and really clear. These are the things about our faith that I really believe. And I think you're a lying if you don't agree with me here, okay? I'm just going to get it out there. That make us feel at odds with the world in which we live. We're the fish swallows people people. That's who we are. That's not something like... People really want to just own up to at the water cooler on Tuesday at 10 a.m. Truly. But it's really, really important for us to understand not just the gravity and the weight and the factuality of this story, but ultimately the way the story is being written and being told. Because this is not you and I writing to each other in modern current times about this moment. For the reader in Hebrew, for the hearer of this story... There is an embrace, there's an understanding that God does miraculous things. These are people who would have read of and have ancestors who experienced plagues. God parting the Red Sea. 
pillar, cloud, fire, all of these amazing, incredible things that God has done. And their focus and their thinking would not be like, well, look, how big is a whale's mouth? And what's the inside of his stomach like? And what's really the digestive system and the process? And how much bile is there? And where would he sit? And how could he? That's not what you and I are ultimately called to focus on in this story. It's this, is that God is in control. That there's this miracle, this divine act beyond human explanation that helps us to understand that figuring out what sorts of fish people can live in is not the interest of Scripture. Then there's this picture of three days and three nights. And for those of us that are steeped in, in, in reading the Bible, there's something that really probably jumps out at us. This picture of three days and three nights, it harkens back to this idea of truly the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then your mind jumps and you're like, nope, wait a minute. Not right. It's supposed to be three days and two nights. There's idiom taking place here. And this is helping us understand how to read the scriptures truly. Because in the Hebrew mind, the picture here is not counting hours. That's not what's happening in this moment. This picture of three days is a signifier. It's a pointing towards something not a chronological timetable. Instead, it's actually talking about and pointing to. Ancient hearers would hear this three days language and they would understand that it's point, pointing to and talking about the journey from the land of the living, from life unto death in this place called Sheol. This is the place that Jonah will describe in moments. We'll talk more about the three days when we talk about what Jesus says about Jonah as we close our time today. We're going to get to Sheol in a second in verse 2. Look into verse 2. Jonah, or verse 1 into verse 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And this is really, really, really simple language. Not a lot of strange vernacular here at all. But here's the thing. Don't miss this. Jonah's rebellious. Jonah is running. He's experiencing miraculous rescue from certain death. And this is what the text says. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. So Jonah's not praying to the man upstairs. Jonah's not praying toward a higher being or a higher power. Jonah's praying to Yahweh. Jonah's praying to the God that he knows. Jonah's praying to the God that has delivered him. Jonah's praying to the God that caused him to be able to prophesy the blessing that happened to Israel in his past. Jonah is praying personally to the God who's called him. This is really, really important to see. That in the midst of Jonah's distress... Even he recognizes that God is close to him. In the midst of his doubt and pain and wonder and confusion, God is close to him. Here's how close he is. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress in verse 2, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So there's some really, really, really important things happening in this moment. One, you see Jonah calling out to the Lord in his circumstance. And I think it's really important to point out, like, we don't have any sort of picture or understanding. What does Jonah see in this moment? What's around him, right? Does he realize he's in the belly of a great fish? Does, did, did, he, did he turn and look before he goes in there? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. We don't know. We don't have any indication of this. And as a result, Jonah, in some sense, must feel deeply confused. And yet, he's still calling out to the Lord. He's in a place he's never been before. 
And he also recognizes that what has loomed around him in the moments preceding this is truly certain death. We talked about the last couple of weeks that there there is no Jacques Cousteau, there is no Jules Verne, there is no Discovery Channel. The ocean in, in ancient days is deep and mysterious and quite often and very often in the Old Testament, it is the ocean, the waters are the picture of Sheol or they are the picture of death. A place in which humans can't live or abide. This is where Jonah has been and now he's saved into this what would seemingly be an unknown place to him. This is rock bottom. This is rock bottom for Jonah. And you know what we, I mean by that because that's an idiom. Like just being at the bottom. That's kind of the three days thing that we're going to get to toward the end of the text. It's words that depict a meaning of something, a a state, a scenario. And Jonah is at rock bottom. It's really, really easy to see that at this point, Jonah has gone down to Joppa. He's gone away from the Lord. He's gone down to the ship. He's gone down into the bottom of the ship. He's experienced what we see in chapter 1 is this like sorrow, this depression of running from the Lord, of losing his identity and losing his, his really his job. This guy has given up on being a prophet. He's lost relationships. He's just run. He's lost everything Jonah has gone down now into the belly of the fish, into Sheol. This is as rock bottom as it gets. Jonah is really at the end of himself. So what we need to see in these verses, this out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol, we can read those words and not really feel affected, but this is pure anguish. This means, this belly of Sheol, it basically means the innermost part of death. I've gone To the place of death. That he knows that that's what lurks all around him. But in this moment he realizes. That God has saved him. That God has caused. This thing to swallow him up. That God is the one who delivers him. One of my favorite contemporary theologians. A guy named Chad Bird says this. Sometimes the Lord has to bring us down to the lowest point. Before we can hear words from on high. Jonah is at his lowest point. Look in verses 3 and 4. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. He uses this language to say the flood surrounds him. He's coming to grips with the fact that God has orchestrated this. Because look at what it says. All your waves and your billows passed over me. He recognizes that God is in control. And that these things are happening with not just a divine purpose, but divine orchestration. This is God not just taking moments and making them his. These are God's moments. God is doing something really, really powerful in the midst of Jonah's distress in the flood that surrounds him. Then he uses these words in verse 4. He says, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. When you would use the words out of your sight to Hebrew readers... The people of this day, they would recognize it as verbiage that would describe death. To be out of the view of living in the world in view of God. That in death, in a human sense, one would no longer be in God's presence. And yet, he uses this language about holy temple to describe that even though it would seem as if he's out of God's sight... Jonah says he looks again upon God's holy temple. Well, what is God's holy temple? It's the place where the presence of God resides. It's the holy of holies. It's the place where God is. So Jonah is saying, now in this moment, in my moment of distress, at rock bottom, I've come to the end of myself. And yet I realize that you hear me. And that your presence from which I was running is now the desire of my heart. I want to come to you. I want to, Lord, be with you in your presence. Verses 5 and 6 give us this really beautiful picture of other scriptures that we see throughout the Old Testament, but more so a vivid picture of how grave Jonah's situation is. 
and the finality of death. Look at these words. The water closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. His life's taken over. He's surrounded. He even used these words. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's talking about the bars of, the gates of, being trapped and confined by death and hell. Sheol, the grave. So when you read that language in Matthew chapter 16 about the gates of hell, this is what it's talking about. Something did go wrong. Um, (laughs) uh, Look, the gates of hell. This is what Jonah is describing in this moment. He describes this pit from which the Lord brings his life up. So already, this pit language, this is Psalm chapter 40, verse 2. Drive, being driven away, looking at his temple. All of these things that Jonah is saying, it's really, really important for us to see. And this is why it's so beautiful for us to find out that Jonah has, has spoken in the midst of this psalm that it is prayer to the Lord that he's calling out. He's quoted Psalm 40. He's quoted Psalm 42. He's quoted Psalm 69. He's quoted Psalm 88 twice. And he's quoted Psalm 115. And this is the big picture, the point that we need to see from all of that. Jonah has come to the end of himself, and there's nothing he can say that's true other than that which he knows to be true, which is the very word of God. He finds himself at rock bottom, and this is all he can say. Ferguson says it this way. It's as if Jonah has no original thought of his own. All he can say to God are God's words. This is what happens When we find ourselves in the pit of despair, when we find ourselves surrounded by death. Or quite frankly, just surrounded by, in a human sense, deep uncertainty. There is not one certain thing about the physical presence of Jonah. He doesn't know where he is likely, how long he will be there. And when he leaves there, perhaps he had expected for at least the early portion of this, however long he is there, that he's just going to be cast back out into the water in which he'll find death. So everything for Jonah is wrapped up in this uncertainty. What are we to make of this? When we come to the end of ourselves, truly, When we're in uncertain circumstances, truly, the only things that we know to be true are the things that are truly true. The things that are real. The things that we can know because we've seen evidence of it beyond a shadow of a doubt time and time again. And Jonah knows, this is what Jonah knows in this moment, that God is faithful and his words are true. God is faithful and his words are true. He says in verse 7, when my life was fainting away, this is the point that he describes. Look, the, the life that I have is not in my control. The sovereignty of God is at work here. The life that I thought I had is fainting away. It is being drawn away. And that language is passive. It's, 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 it's passive in such a way that it, it states that Jonah does not have control of his breath, his life, his being. Just like you and I don't. He says he remembered the Lord. And that his prayer comes to the Lord into his temple. So in the midst of this despair, Jonah's prayer reaches God. And God is the one who hears him. And God is the one who saves him. In the same way as Brian led us this morning, we walked through Psalm 86. We get this picture of the steadfast love of God. And this God is so amazing and so incredible and so beautiful. It's not just that he is this faithful and this good and this merciful and this loving. But it's that God that hears sinners like you and me cry out to him. He hears us cry out to him and he saves us. He redeems us. This mention of the temple, again, is to draw us to the recognition of God's presence. This is Jonah. His whole whole story at this point, his whole life is marked by the fact, not that he got on a ship, not that he was in a storm, not that he's in the belly of a great fish. His life is marked from the fact that he sought to run from the presence of the Lord. And when he gets to the end of that journey, in so many ways, 
he recognizes that all he wants is to be in God's presence. This is the desire of the person of God. To be with the God who loves them. Verses 8 and 9. The reality of the covenant of God and his covenant-breaking people like you and me. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In so many ways, Jonah's describing a couple of different types of people. One, he's, he's really describing the people who have, who have given their life over to what he calls vain idols. These things that do not satisfy. These things that have been made God in someone's eyes rather than Yahweh, rather than the Lord, rather than trusting the God. Remember in chapter 1 when Jonah describes who he is? He says, I'm a Hebrew My God is the creator of the heavens, of the land, and of the sea. So worshiping vain idols is loving any God that's not that. And quite often for us, that God is ourselves. For Jonah, it's been himself. He wants what he wants, not what the Lord wants. And the end of that is missing out on forsaking the lack of experience of the hope of God's steadfast love. But the beautiful part is there's opportunity for us to repent, to experience yet again, even in the midst of our disobedience, even though we've failed and we've fallen down and we've stumbled and we didn't listen and we didn't obey and we ran the other direction. God is pursuing us with steadfast love. Then he says this, The voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. So Jonah offers repentance in some sense. And he says that he wants to turn from being a covenant breaker to a covenant keeper. One who keeps his promises. One who obeys the Lord. But if you've read Jonah, and you've read chapter 3 and chapter 4, you'll see, you'll recognize that though this is the intent of his heart perhaps in this moment, this is not what Jonah does. Fails to do this. How can there be hope for runners? How can there be hope for leavers? How can there be hope for people, quite frankly, like you and me? People who said we wouldn't and we did. People who said we'll do it and we don't. People like you and me, who in so many ways do the things we don't want to do, and we don't do the things that we do want to do. This is Paul in Romans 7. Where's our hope? Even in the midst of Jonah's brokenness, and and I think what truly in this moment is a prayer of partial repentance of sorts. He longs for the Lord, and yet even talking about vain idols, there's almost this sense That he's saying, look, I'm glad I'm a part of your kingdom. I'm glad I've been chosen by you. I'm glad I'm a part of your world and not this world of the Ninevites. There's all these things kind of really swirling around here. But Jonah, imperfect and broken as he may be, even God would use him in this moment to preach the most profound truth. And ultimately, the theme of the scriptures is this. Look at verse 9. Look what it says. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah knows what he's saying, and yet he does not know what he's saying. Salvation is God's. God is the one who saves. There is no amount of covenant keeping that you and I can do. When Jesus says, it is finished... He's not finishing what we started. Do you understand that? He is the beginning and the end of our faith. He has done everything for us. All we've brought to the table is brokenness and sin and vain idolatry and a love of ourselves. And we're good at it. We've loved ourselves very, very well. And yet in the midst of our despair, we cry out to God. And God is the one who saves us. 
And he does it in a way that is miraculous. And I would argue that it is more miraculous than the idea of a great fish swallowing a person for any amount of time. Salvation doesn't come from us. There's no getting to God. To most of to some of us, to our ears, that could sound like bad news. Like, are you telling me no matter how good I am, how much I obey, trying to be a good person, trying to do the right thing, trying to work on myself, are you telling me that I can't get to God? Yes, that is what I'm telling you. That is what the scriptures are telling you and me. That no matter what we do, We've sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory. And yet, we can experience salvation. The salvation that belongs to the Lord because He's the one that longs to bestow it to us. He's the one that longs to give it to us. Look at verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. All of these three themes that we've talked about today. God's pursuit God's control and God's salvation all bound up in this one little verse. It's gross, kind of, right? He's vomited. And yet these three amazing things are easy for us to see. They all coalesce together. One, it's God's pursuit that's captured and it's kept Jonah. Two, God's control, he controls, he appoints the great fish to swallow him. Now he appoints the fish, he speaks to the fish, and the fish cannot but throw him out onto dry land. And upon dry land, we get the significance of the picture of salvation, of being saved from death. So when we read Jonah, we don't just read this cute story about A guy who's kind of on the run, who could be a little better. Who gets swallowed by this big, giant whale. And then comes out on the other end unscathed. Instead, we get a picture of what God's like. He pursues us relentlessly. He's in control of all things. And he saves. He redeems Where is that? Where's the gospel in this passage? Here's where the gospel is in this passage, okay? Jonah goes down. That word down is is this word urad, and it it means to go. So it's down. It's the same word throughout the Hebrew that's used in a repetitive teaching way over and over again. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the ship. He goes down into the ship's innermost part. He goes down into the depths, into the sheol belly, the very bottom of the whale. Jonah goes down as if to death, but he does so as one who's being pursued. Jonah escapes death, but he doesn't do that. God does it. Jonah deserves death, and he's given life. And Jonah is meant to be God's instrument of pursuing the lost, of preaching repentance, of preaching salvation. And instead, Jonah is disobedient. But Jonah points to one better. Jonah points to Jesus, and this is what Jesus does. Jesus goes down to death in pursuit of us. And Jesus doesn't just escape unscathed. Jesus overcomes death. And Jonah deserved death, but Jesus does not deserve death. And yet Jesus gives us his very life. We sang it this morning, his death and resurrection... The crucifixion, the resurrection, rising from the dead. Jesus is God pursuing us and giving us his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love. His salvation through his obedience to the Father. Jonah is disobedient and yet Jesus is fully obedient. Jesus tells people... And he tells us by way of Matthew 12, but he also tells this group of people that surrounds him that he is more than Jonah. And in fact, he is the one to which Jonah is pointing. 
There's these scribes, these Pharisees. They come and they surround Jesus. And this is Matthew's gospel, chapter 12. And they're asking for a sign. Do you know these people who've seen like ample evidence for something like a million times over? And they're like, but could you just like give me a sign? Are you this person? Yeah, me too. Truly. So I can resonate in my own brokenness with this. But in so many ways, the scribes, the Pharisees are really trying to dissuade others from following Jesus. They're calling him to do all these signs, these things. This is what they say. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus knows the intent of their hearts, and this is what he says. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Some amazing things happening And what Jesus says, Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jonah is the prophet who preaches, and we'll do it next week, but this is a spoiler. It's like the worst sermon there's ever been. Truly. It's five Hebrew words, and it's terrible. Have you ever been that student that, like, does the bare minimum? Right? This This is Jonah on steroids. Just the worst. And yet, this is the impact of what happens, what God does. Jonah is the prophet who preaches in the most unfaithful and horrible and basic and terrible and with no heart and no energy and no thought and, quite frankly, does so without really a desire to do what he's doing. And the worst of the worst repent. They just immediately sackcloth and ash. These people who found joy and, and their own sense of life and worth in conquering and killing and murdering others and plundering, these people repent. And Jesus says he is more. Because Jonah is this image of an imperfect prophet. A broken prophet that God still uses. How much more will he use the very perfect life of his son to redeem? Jesus goes into the heart of the earth. The word that's here that's described with the belly of Sheol is one that is your rod. It's down. It's Jesus going down. Not me and you starting the race and Jesus picking up the baton and finishing at the end when we gave out a gas. This is Jesus doing everything, going down into the belly, to the depth of death, dying for us and raising us to new life. He takes on our sin, our guilt, our shame, all of these things. And so that language, those three days and three nights, you're like, hey, that doesn't really match up with other New Testament events. And so should I be doubting this? What what am I to make of this? Jesus himself says three days and three nights. He's using a phrase, an idiom, something that would help these people understand the journey to death. That's the point. That's the point of him using the language of three. And in doing so, Jesus is trying to tell them what he will accomplish. That life and redemption and salvation will come through his death and his resurrection. Remember, you read through the Gospels. Look at, look, go look at Mark's Gospel, and especially starting in chapter 8. Go look at this moment where Peter says, we got to quit talking about all this you dying stuff, Jesus. we got to quit this. One, this is not a good look for us. All right, two, who, how can you be king? How can you conquer if you're dead? Jesus is constantly foretelling of his death and his resurrection because this is our salvation. And there's one more really, really important thing to see here. In Greek, that word, great fish, that's translated here, it actually would be much more appropriate And I get why we don't do it. Jesus uses the word sea monster. 
That's really the language that Jesus uses. He uses this word sea monster. So we don't get a picture of, you know, a whale. Jesus uses this language of a monster. Why does he do that? He's using it to connect to the story of the great fish that they know and that they understand. But he's using a word that describes a chasm. You see, that language of sea monster, that word of sea monster comes from the word chasma, where we get our word chasm. This vast expanse between two things. And this is what Jesus is saying in this moment. That the great fish was the chasm between life and death. It was all that separated Jonah from mortal death in those waters to the experience of life he had on the shore. Do you know what Jesus is saying in this subtle but profound way? He's saying that, don't you get it? That I am the chasm from death to life. I'm the one that stands between the absence of God and the experience of God. Jesus is the one who saves us. So this is Jonah 2. This is a picture of the God who saves. And you might say, well, what do I do with all of this? Like, what, like, I came today looking to know what to do. What's the application? Where do I go? What's the thing that I do? Here's what you need to do. Truly, here's what I need to do as I leave this place today. I need to recognize that God has pursued me so deeply that there's nothing beyond his control and that I'm so deeply loved in this unfathomable way, this like God lives in a whale kind of way, This miraculous, astounding, words don't make sense of it kind of way. That God would meet me at the end of myself. That when I come to the end of myself, I'm not further away from God, but God is near to me. That's our God. Jonah does not fear like sinking deep in sin. He knows he's dead at the bottom apart from God's grace. And God has given us his son to save us, to redeem us. This is not a Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John picture. It's not a gospel's picture. This is not a a picture that we get only in letters that Paul writes. This is the theme of the scriptures that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. That this is what God is like. God is one who saves. That God comes to us at our worst, not our best. That's hopeful for you and me. Because I look out at a room of people and I mean, I know so many of your stories and, and who you are and what God's done in your heart. And you're beautiful and you're amazing. And there's all this stuff that I don't know about you. This dark. I'm not trying to bum you out at the end, I promise. But your brokenness, your sin, your propensity to live for yourself, your running, your fleeing of the presence of the Lord. It's enough often to make us think, how could he tolerate me? How could he put up with me? Do you know that that's not how God views you? He loves you. And if we get even a glimmer, just a glimpse, just the smallest picture of the gravity of our own sin, then grace becomes sweeter than we can imagine. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And here's the deal. This morning, you can have it. You can experience it. As our worship team comes and we, and we prepare to close this service in response, you have the opportunity to believe in the gospel. To not just know about in your head and not just even feel emotionally, but truly be transformed by the very power of God by believing in, by trusting in Jesus. Because this is the gospel. 
that we're sinners, that we're broken. And I don't, I, I don't have to teach you that. I don't have to tell you that. You know this. You, you understand that God has set eternity in the heart of man, that there are things that you have done you know are wrong, and you've sinned against the Lord. You have even probably given an innate sense that God has made the world that you walk around in and that you live in. All these things start to collide together, and you recognize, man, I, I need redemption. I need to be saved. I need to trust in something beyond myself. Trust in this, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Christ did not die for you in your obedient pursuit of others. He died for you at your rock bottom, that you could have life in him. So this morning, here's what to do. Believe the gospel. Just believe this. Truly, believe the gospel. And you may say, look, I've trusted in Christ, Michael. I know Christ. Well, here would be my deep urge to you today. Believe the gospel. Not just for a moment in your past, but for right now. In this moment that everything you have and everything you are is all attributed to the very grace and mercy of God. That salvation is his and his alone. So for believer this morning, you might be in a place of doubt and you need to trust and to rest in the finished work of what Christ has done. That Christ took on the chasm of sin and death himself to bring you to God, to restore you to his presence, to give you new life in himself. And you might walk in here and you just might need to hear these words anew and afresh and let it bring you joy. And walk out of here with a smile on your face and a song in your heart that says, God's loved me. And it's ridiculous. I mean, it's so bizarre and strange that his grace would come to someone like me. Believe in that gospel so you can share it with others. And love this little community and your friends and your family and everyone around you. Can we do that this morning? Can we believe in the gospel together? Brother and sister, let's do it. Let's not rest in what we did well or the things that we did unwell. Let's repent of our sin and let's trust in what Christ has done for us. I'd love for you to take a moment and stand. As we pray together and we close our time, let's just ask the Lord that he would truly cause us to believe the gospel. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we come to the end of ourselves and we come to the recognition of all that's true. Father, we come to you, creator, sustainer, pursuer, the one who is in control, all for this end that you would save us. So God, this morning, we ask you to do that. Father, I ask that if there's someone here who has not trusted in you, who has not put their faith in your son, Jesus, that even in this moment, you would draw their heart, that you would cause them to believe, to even begin to believe, to trust in you. Father, for those of us that are in you, that are in your son, Jesus Christ, could we just rejoice at the salvation that is yours to give and you give it to us? Can we rejoice in that this morning? Set that joy in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. I'd love to pray with you if you want to pray. Uh, the altar is yours if you want to come pray to the Lord who saves. Uh, let's worship this Lord together this morning.